Well, good afternoon. This morning we're going to be taking a look at the sixth commandment found in Exodus 20:13, "You shall not murder." And I believe if Christ himself were presenting this morning, number one, it'd be a lot better presentation. But number two, if he were here and he was talking on the sixth commandment, I think he would start something like this. I think he would say, take a look around you this morning, you know, those people on the right, on the left. And he would say, there are murderers among us this morning. Now, first you might think, well, he's just trying to get my attention by saying that. He doesn't really mean it. But then as you realize, no, he really meant it, you take another look at those people over there and those folks over there. And you begin to think, I thought this was a safe place, you know? Church is supposed to be a safe place. What do you mean there are murderers among us? You might start thinking about where the exits are, you know? That's exactly what Jesus did with a group of people about 2,000 years ago. He shocked them when he explained there's really more than one way to murder someone. And this morning we're going to unpack this sixth commandment and discover there are at least three ways that we could be guilty of violating this command of murder. My name is Randy Binkley and I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at LCF. It occurred to me as I was getting ready for this one, I've been doing this for about 14 years now which sounds to me like a long time. But this morning we're going through the Ten Commandments. When I've been up here, we've been doing a little series, mini-series on the Ten Commandments, and we're over halfway done. We're on number six. Now, if you've got a great memory, and since it's been maybe a little while since I've been up here, let's just review so we know the context of where we're at. Do you remember the first commandment? It was, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. The concept there is life was meant to be lived in relationship with God, and everyone is to honor God as God, to acknowledge His existence, to affirm His sovereignty, and to obey His directives. Life was never meant to be lived apart from God. The second one was no idols. And the, the point behind this one is refuse in any way, shape, or form to reduce God in your life. Let your heart be an idol free zone. Don't let anything like fame or fortune or power or pleasure or houses or cars or food or sports teams, even if they win the World Series, or happiness or even family, get into a position where they're competing with God's rightful place in your heart. No idols. If you have a great memory, number three was revere the name of God. And we said there, don't be one of the uninformed or the uncontrolled or the unsaved, but rather respect, honor, and revere the name of God. The fourth commandment was honor the Sabbath. Spend one day a week remembering who God is, worshiping Him, and recalibrating your mind and your values so that you don't wander off course and waste your days. The fifth commandment was honor your parents. And it talked there about when you're young, that means obey. And when you're in that adolescent phase, it means respect and cooperate, work with them. And when you're in that adult later phase, it means treasure your parents. Which brings us to this morning, number six, you shall not murder. And over the years, I've taught on the Ten Commandments a number of times, and I've noticed when you get to number six, everybody's feeling good. A little bit of a sense of relief. Did you ever 
Uh, maybe in college or grad school, you looked at your semester and it was just loaded with really hard courses. But then, you know, there was one of them you slipped in there like Bowling 101, just so you'd have one easy A. And a lot of people look at these commandments and say, these are really hard, but when I get to this one, finally an easy A. I haven't killed anybody. I'm in good shape. I think I can check out here and just think about my grocery list for the next 20 minutes. Well, I I hope that that is true. But as we're going to look at this and break it down a little and unpack it a little, there's more than one way, Jesus said, to murder someone. So let's talk about three ways that we can commit murder. Now, the first one is exactly what you had in mind when you read the bulletin. And I call this murder Chicago style. Murder Chicago style. This is first degree murder. We used to live in Chicago, and Chicago is a city with a bit of a reputation. It's known as the contract capital of the world, kind of an Al Capone, John Dillinger type reputation. And that wasn't just in days gone by. There was an in, when we were living up there, there was an insurance uh, sales or was an executive named Alan Dorfman, and he worked downtown and just decided he'd you know, walk to lunch a couple blocks away. So he and a friend went over to walk to lunch. And as they were walking across a parking lot, broad daylight, people all over the place, two assailants got out of a car, walked up behind him, put five bullets in his head, calmly turned around, walked back to the car, drove off. No hurry, no emotion. The assailant, or the the friend who was with him, said it was just eerie. It was just eerie. I mean, the guys were just doing their job like they were a FedEx employee, delivering a package. No emotion, no rush. Contract style hits. Chicago style, professional eliminations. Murder has become a very regular part of the evening news, hasn't it? Hardly a week goes by. If if you wanted to look at the Mideast, you wouldn't find some kind of car bomb, suicide bomber, or terrorist attack. But it's not just in the Mideast, is it? I work in the Liberty Public School System, and we now, uh, every year, are mandated by the state to do active shooter training. In other words, what would you do if someone walked in the building? with a gun. Just look at the last couple years in America. January 2011, in front of a supermarket in Tucson, Arizona. Six killed, 11 injured. April 2012, a university in Oakland, California. Seven killed, three injured. July 2012, a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. 12 killed, 58 injured. December 2012, Sandy Hook Elementary, Newton, Connecticut. 27 killed, one injured. A couple months ago, work Christmas party, San Bernardino, California, 14 dead, 21 wounded. Is that too far away? How about 11 days ago, Heston, Kansas, 3 dead, 14 injured. And sometimes it almost seems like a movie, doesn't it? But then every once in a while, it strikes a little closer to home, and the reality of it pierces through and gets our attention. And something within us wants to cry out, This is madness. This is inhumane. This is unthinkable. This has got to stop. To which God says, that's exactly what I said a couple thousand years ago. And I wrote it down. You shall not murder. The right to number someone else's days belongs to God alone. And no one has the right to make that decision but God. Think about that first homicide. Cain was jealous of his younger brother Abel. 
And he rose up in anger and he murdered him. It was the first murder. What an impact that must have made on Adam and Eve as they beheld death for the very first time ever. They saw the drama of someone dying, how heinous that must have been, the grayness, the coldness, a lifeless body. They had never seen that before. They must have just gasped at the sight of it all and recoiled. Who does Cain think that he is to murder someone made in the image of God? No one has the right to pirate God's sovereignty to number a man's days. And the sixth commandment, God is saying to everyone not to tamper with his divine right to determine who lives how long. And as a logical extension of this teaching, of course, it speaks to suicide, the murder of self. It prohibits abortion, the ending of the life of the unborn. Infanticide, the ending of the life of the newly born. Euthanasia, the ending of the life of the aged. Who am I? Who are you? Who is anybody to decide who dies when? That decision is clearly in the hands of God. And while we're on it, I believe the Sixth Commandment very clearly speaks not just to, from violence that leads to death, but it really speaks to all forms of physical violence. There are many times in Scripture that God prohibits the striking or the slapping of another. Proverbs 4.17 says, The wicked drink from the cup of violence, but that's not the way that the righteous should act. And I'm kind of afraid in our culture today, we're becoming a little too accustomed to interpersonal violence instead of being radically revolted by it. How is it we tune in TV shows knowing in advance from the teasers that it's going to be all about violence and bloodletting? How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Remember that one? Russell Crowe came out in the year 2000, so it's about 16 years old. But In uh, the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays a, a general named Maximus in the Roman army. And as a, as a military man, he, he's familiar with violence, but it's, it's in the context of service of country and duty and honor. Well, he falls out of political favor, and he gets thrown into the group of the expendables that would be sent to the Colosseum to fight. And he doesn't want to be there, but he has no control over the situation. So then comes the scene where for the first time he's brought to the Roman Colosseum and he's thrown out there on the Colosseum floor and there are 50,000 Romans who've come to watch this event and at this point it's just him and one other guy. And here's the deal. Only one of you gets to live. And so he does what he was trained to do but then after it's over he turns to the crowd and the audience and with all of the disgust and disdain that he can muster, he cries out, Are you not entertained? What is he saying? He's saying, I know what it is to be violent for, for duty, for honor, for country. You are having violence for entertainment? What is wrong with you? How sick a society are you? How sick of an individual are you that you would think this is entertainment? Are you not entertained? And we would agree with him, wouldn't we? We would agree that's sick. Now, I have to admit right up front here, if we're sitting down to watch something, 
I would probably rather pick something out of the action-adventure genre than uh, Downton Abbey, okay? I'm, I'm going to throw that right out there. Having said that, <clears throat> there is a lot out there under the umbrella of entertainment that is hyper-violent coliseum-grade material. And as Christians, we really have to ask the question, why would we pollute our hearts and our minds with that grade of Colosseum-level garbage? There are consequences. There's dangers to it. There's acute desensitization that can occur. There's unwanted memories that can be lodged in our brains and don't go away. And parents, this is really important. There are some things here we should be protecting our kids from. There are some things that at times we just need to do a little spiritual surgery, I think, in our lives. There are, there are things that are not helping us. There are things that are not taking us to the places we want to go or making us the kind of people we want to be. And when we identify that, we just surgically cut them out. If there's any kind of physical violence going on in your world, that's something to be cut out because that's inconsistent with the heart of a loving God. And statistics tell us that there are many women and children in our country that are living in homes where there's physical violence going on. From the year 2001 to 2012, the U.S. was involved in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in that time period, 6,488 servicemen and women died in those battles. Twice that number of people 11,766 in that exact same time period were women who died at the hands of their current or their ex-spouse in America. So for every one soldier we lost, two women were killed right here in our country by their spouse or their ex-spouse, sometimes right in front of the kids. I remember a situation I worked with in Chicago where a woman started coming to our church and about a year afterwards, she wanted to talk, and we got together and talked, and um, she explained that she was in a violent situation at home, compounded by the fact that the person bringing the violence was a policeman who knew the system and could hide really well. Well, we got her into a safe place, but I remember talking with her, you know, after, because nobody knew until she shared that, you know, and saying, well, why didn't, why didn't you come earlier? Why, you know, why did you wait a year? And she said, well, I was afraid, number one. Number two, you know, I thought, as a Christian wife, I should submit to my husband. And it is true in Ephesians 5. The Bible does teach wives, submit to your husbands. But it also teaches husbands, submit to Christ. And, and husbands, treasure your wives. Not hit them or intimidate them or beat them. Treasure. And there's other passages that talk about submitting to one another. And then in the Sixth Commandment, it says violence is not a part of who God is. And if you find yourself in a violent home scenario, I challenge you this week, call the church. Talk to a staff member. That is not God's will for your life. And seldom does hiding it cure it. Chicago-style murders, physical violence. God says that is not a part of who we are. But there's a second way to murder, and I call this liberty style. Liberty style murder, second degree. You see, we're sophisticated. We would never participate in a Chicago style murder. We're just too advanced for that. 
We may own guns, but they're mainly either for show or target practice or maybe to pull out once a year to try to get a buck or some ducks or something. We own knives, but that's mainly because we cut food with them. Nothing else. We're different. We're cultured. We wouldn't assault someone physically, but we might be on the most wanted list for murdering someone verbally. There is such a thing, you know. Jesus quieted a crowd of very self-righteous listeners when he said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, You have heard the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, any, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Well, if that is true, and it is, then I have to admit I am guilty of murder. In moments of frustration or anger, I have murdered my wife. I have murdered my children. I have murdered friends and coworkers. This is a devastating indictment, and I'm, I'm absolutely certain it dispersed that crowd really quickly. When people hear this, everyone wants to just go home. Think about this for a while. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, what he's saying is there's a frightening similarity between physical violence and verbal violence, between a dripping knife and juicy gossip, between bullets and bad-mouthing others. And this frightening similarity is because all of those kinds of behaviors emanate from a heart that is not controlled by the love of Christ, but rather is churning with self-interest and hatred and envy and jealousy. That's what he was driving at. You can kill a man with your hands or you can kill a man with your mouth. And Jesus said, I forbid both kinds of violence because the reason they're the same is they both flow out of the same type of heart. And that heart has to change before the behavior will. So it really begs the question, what is going on in our hearts? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to control us and to fill us or is that old sinful nature still calling the shots? Jesus was underscoring the point that no man has the right to number another man's days with physical violence, and no man has the right to murder another person's reputation and character and self-esteem. Parents commit liberty-style killings when they shoot debilitating phrases at their children. If you get together with most adults and you get them talking, most of them can readily remember when they were young some, some bullets that came their way. Been a long time ago, but they still remember them. Maybe they heard things like, my parents told me I was a jerk or that I'd never amount to anything or that I was an accident or that, you know, I would never be of any use to anyone. Those bullets hit their mark. And sometimes children turn and shoot those bullets back at their parents and say things that should never be said to parents. And see, the parents die just a little when that bullet hits. Verbal violence. Spouses can be especially deadly. Because they know all the weaknesses. They know where to hit you where it hurts. Siblings can do it. It's, it happens at work. It happens at school. There can be racial slurs and ethnic slaps and sexual shots. It's everywhere. And human beings lash out with their tongues. And when they do that, it's a liberty-style murder taking place. And God says, that has to stop. 
Chances are you know what it's like. Maybe you were uh, on the receiving end of that, and you can remember a time when you were attacked verbally. And Jesus saying in this application of the Sixth Commandment that God loves us so much that he wants to protect us from verbal assassinations. Our gracious God is trying to protect all of us, not just from physical violence, but from verbal violence as well. Now, why would a person lash out and attack another person verbally? Well, really, it's not that different than the homicide issue. Remember Cain? Cain was offering his sacrifices, but he wasn't doing it right. He wasn't doing it God's way. He wanted to do it his way, not God's way. And that didn't work. Abel did it right. And then Cain began to entertain some thoughts of jealousy and envy. And when jealousy and envy hang around for a while, that turns into anger. And anger then expresses itself through verbal violence and physical violence. Envy and jealousy. What would we be envious and jealous of these days? You know, how come they have a bigger house than I do? How come they have a nicer place than we have? How come he's got a better job than I've got? How come she got that promotion and I didn't? How come they have a nicer spouse than I have? How come they have better kids than I have? How come they have more money than I have? How come I drove up this morning in an eight-year-old car and they got a brand new one? That's not fair. I work just as hard as they do. Envy and jealousy. It, It tries to find ways into our heart, doesn't it? And when it comes in, and we allow it to stay. It will result in anger, which will result oftentimes in verbal violence and physical violence. It's not that different than the first one. All right, here's a question for you. How many of you like to take good care of your cars? If you're with those kind of people. I'm, I'm one of those kind of people. I have an arrangement with my vehicles. I take good care of you. You take good care of me. It's a quid pro quo kind of thing. And uh, so this last week as I came out to the parking lot, just running around taking care of, uh, of business, I noticed as I walked past the, the driver's side rear fender that and it's a little hard to see in this picture, but there's, there's paint scraped off that. Like somebody hit my fender while I was in, you know, just taking care of some business there at the office. And so, you know, I stand there, and that, that kind of irritates me. I know it's not a big deal, but it kind of irritates me. If there's one thing I'm a little obsessive-compulsive about, it's probably the condition of my vehicles. I consider that a matter of personal hygiene. So, you know, <laughs> I, I take care of them. And, and so I come out, and it's been damaged. You know, there's no note. So someone, obviously, with a black car, you know, hit the, hit the bumper, scraped the paint off. And it, so I'm a little irritated that they would do that and not leave a note. And then I start to think, well, what should I do about this? You know, well, Sharon was driving the car yesterday. I wonder if something happened and she forgot to tell me about it. Did I not just notice it this morning when, I, when it was dark? And, or did a coworker, you know, back out and clip my car on the way out? We have video. Should I go back in and watch the video? You know, find him, run him down and say, here's the video. You hit my car. You need to fix that. Anyway, I'm, so I'm just a little irritated and I'm thinking about what to do with that. Now, how many of you think that sounds reasonable? You know, that, you know, that would be a an, an, an reasonable reaction in that situation. Okay. Well, you know, as if the car being damaged isn't enough, you know, uh, then when I pulled out my remote there and I was going to unlock the car, apparently my battery must have died because the car wasn't unlocking. And I thought, well, this is going to be a great day, isn't it? You know, it's really starting off great. But then at that moment it occurred to me, maybe I need to check my assumptions here. Maybe I have 
not interpreted this situation correctly. So I kind of zoomed back and took another look at it. And you know what I discovered? Apparently, I'm the 2008 silver Honda Accord on the right side of the white van, not the 2008 silver Honda Accord on the left side of the van. Once I figured that out, I felt much better, and my remote started working again. Why do I say that? Well, it is easy sometimes. You know, these things happen to us. Someone says something, something happens. It's just easy in, in the everyday life scenario. We have to try to make sense of some injury or something, and we try to interpret it. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can rush to judgment. We can uh, make some assumptions that are false. We can decide too quickly before we have all the information, and that can create anger. And that can create conflict and verbal assaults. We get angry. We say things, you know, that we don't mean. And what's the reminder here? Well, the opposite of a murdering heart is a loving heart. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What's the point here? The point is, when we're operating out of a loving heart, these things are going to happen, but we give the benefit of doubt. We believe the best about the other person when we don't have all the information, not the worst. So instead of quickly running to that negative conclusion, we withhold judgment. We believe the best, we think the best, and we can check it out. Now you say, well, what if I do check it out and someone was evil? They were intentionally doing something evil. Well, Pastor Tim talked last week about how to handle that, and that's covered with that unthinkable grace where when we can reply to those situations with mercy and forgiveness and love... But that doesn't happen that often. Many times it's just these little things of life. And if we're not careful, we rush to judgment, make false assumptions that are negative, instead of bringing that loving heart that's going to believe the best and check it out. Verbal violence is like physical violence. It does damage. And it's something that God does not want to see. Let's take a look at a third way that we can be guilty of murder. And I call this religious-style murder, religious-style. This is the passive form of murder. Here, we're not arranging for someone to be killed. We're just allowing it to happen. In Matthew 25, 41, it says, Jesus explored the question of how loving hearts should respond to needy people. And he posed it this way to a group of rather self-righteous individuals. He said, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Now, you didn't stab me. You didn't slander me. But it's also true that you did not sustain my life. And because of that, I died. And my blood is on your hands. You see, Jesus finds them guilty of homicide by default. He said, you just ignored me. He continued, I was a stranger and no one reached out to me. It's true, no one shot me, no one yelled at me. But no one reached out to me. No one said anything kind to me. No handshake, no smile, no invitation, no love. He continued, I was, I was naked, I was in prison, I was in need. In a way, I was dying. And you sat there piously and religiously and passively and did nothing. 1 John three seventeen says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, well, how does the love of God abide in him? The Chicago murderer has a hate-filled heart, and this physical violence flows out of that. The Liberty-style murderer has an arrogant, insensitive heart, and his verbal violence flows out of that. 
But a religious murderer just has a cold, compassionless heart. And his apathy flows out of that. And to each one, God says, time is up. Time is up. Let's not go on like this any further. It's high time for a heart transplant. It's time to look at Jesus, the manifestation of the purest form of love this world has ever seen. The Jesus who took the riches to rags story out of love for us. It's time to be motivated by that example. It's time to be melted by that love, that grace, that mercy. It's time to be cleansed by His sacrifice so that our hate-filled hearts, our arrogant hearts, our apathetic hearts are transformed rather into hearts that are broken and tender and warm and responsive and filled with compassion. So that when we see violence, it breaks our heart. And we intervene to find ways to stop that. Our hands are used to protect others, not to hurt others. And when we speak, our words are not tearing down people, but they're building up people. And when we, we use our resources, we're meeting needs in Jesus' name. The sixth commandment is really about a heart that is Christ-empowered and transformed so that it is no longer violent, arrogant, or apathetic but it has been changed to a heart that's overflowing with the love of Christ that then naturally expresses itself with life-giving actions and life-giving words and life-giving priorities. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, teach us your ways. Teach us your ways. Lord, we know all too well what it is to be human. But, Lord, you have empowered us to live your divine life. We need you to change our hearts. We need you to soften our hearts when they're hard. We need you to melt our hearts when they're cold. Lord, make us life givers. Lord, you're a life giver. Make our hearts so filled with your love that our actions protect and preserve life, that our words build and encourage and our priorities of our resources are used to bring you glory. Lord, we thank you that you can do this, and you want to do this, and you will do this as we allow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Mm -hmm.